While most people with epilepsy are treated with medications, other modalities such as surgery, diet, and neuromodulation are often necessary. Since the FDA approval of the vagus nerve stimulator in 1997, there has been a growing interest in neuromodulation. A second, more sophisticated device, the Neuropace Responsive Stimulator, received FDA approval in 2013. Our guest today is an expert in epilepsy and will discuss with us the spectrum of neuromodulation therapies, how they work, and which patients are appropriate candidates for neuromodulation. This is Clinician's Roundtable, and I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner. With me today is Dr. Robert Fisher, Professor of Neurology and Director of the Stanford Epilepsy Center, Stanford University, California. Dr. Fisher, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Bob, now most patients with epilepsy are treated with medications. What are the clinical situations that warrant consideration of neuromodulation therapy? I agree that medications are the mainstay of treatment for epilepsy, but they're only effective in about two-thirds of people with epilepsy. The remainder will have ongoing seizures or unacceptable side effects of medications. And for those uh, individuals, other treatments would be considered. Probably the most important would be epilepsy surgery, the details of which would be for another discussion, or in children, ketogenic diet. But increasingly important are neuromodulation therapies, sometimes called neurostimulation therapies, but neuromodulation is a more general term. What are our options? Which types of neuromodulation therapy are FDA approved and in current use? Two neuromodulation therapies for epilepsy are approved, the vagus nerve stimulation and the neuropace responsive neurostimulation therapy. The deep brain stimulation of thalamus treatment has been through a multicenter randomized clinical trial with favorable outcome results. And this therapy is approved in about 30 countries around the world, but not yet by the FDA in the United States. I'm hopeful that it will be soon. Are there any other neuromodulation therapies in development? Probably the most interesting set would be magnetic stimulation modulation therapies because those are non-invasive. The other three therapies we talked about, uh, VMS, DBS, RNS, require surgery to implant electrodes. But transcranial magnetic stimulation is non-invasive. However, there have been some favorable trials and some unfavorable trials, so the jury is still out yet on that therapy, and it is not FDA-approved at this point. I remember years ago, oh, at least 20 years ago, we had one of these magnetic stimulators, and there was some suggestion that it would decrease seizure frequency if you sort of had regular stimulation on some kind of schedule. And then I think there was also some question that it might actually increase seizures. Is that under investigation still? It's parameter dependent. The higher frequency of stimulation, for example, 10 hertz and above, can be provocative for creating seizures. However, the lower frequency stimulation is generally inhibitory to the cortical tissue underneath. So it depends upon the parameters of stimulation. And my own belief, which at this point is just a hypothesis, is that the effectiveness of transcranial magnetic stimulation, or in this case, repetitive, transcranial magnetic stimulation 
requires that you know where the seizure focus is and it be fairly superficial because at least with the figure eight butterfly coils that are commonly used, the penetration is only a matter of a few centimeters, not deep to temporal lobe. Now, some of the newer coils are addressing the ability to do deeper stimulation, and I think that might provide an exciting opportunity for the future. Right now, RTMS is still experimental. Are you personally involved with neuromodulation research now? Yes, I am. I was the principal investigator for two of the trials leading to FDA approval of the Model 106 vagus nerve stimulator that senses the increase in heart rate that occurs during some seizures in about 80% of patients and then delivers a vagus nerve stimulation synchronized to that as well as stimulating on the ordinary five-minute clock cycle or whatever parameters are set. I was the principal investigator of the SANTE trial, stimulation of the anterior nucleus of thalamus for epilepsy trial with bilateral implantation of depth wires in thalamus in patients with focal or focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. Not showed efficacy, but as I mentioned, it's used outside the United States, but not yet in the United States. I'm doing research on repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation right now, and I have other interests in the neuromodulation area, including neuromodulation with implanted pumps and medications, but that would be a subject for another discussion as well. And I'm a consumer of the RNS treatment, the NeuroPACE device, where I'm referring many of my patients to that therapy here at Stanford. And that therapy was developed by Dr. Martha Morell, who is one of my colleagues at Stanford. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Fisher about the role of neuromodulation in the treatment of epilepsy. Dr. Fisher, we've talked a little bit about the different types of neuromodulation therapies. Do we know how these devices work in the brain to decrease seizure frequency? I wish that we did understand the mechanism of neuromodulation better than we do. At present, it's mostly an empirical therapy that has a number of theories about how it works, but no clear proof of what the mechanism or mechanisms are. One of the reasons we don't call it neurostimulation is because it seems odd to stimulate to stop a seizure. And in fact, many of the mechanisms may involve inhibition of neuronal circuitry and desynchronization of neuronal circuitry, particularly in the limbic system. If you stimulate anterior nucleus of thalamus, you will desynchronize firing of neurons, for example, in hippocampus. I think we're modulating networks, we're modulating circuits, we're altering neurotransmitters, But as I mentioned at the beginning, there's no one clear unifying theory about how these things work. What about adverse effects? Does chronically stimulating the brain with electric shocks or magnetic stimulation, does it cause side effects? You know, the brain's pretty complex, mood, cognition. Are there any perceptible effects besides seizure control? Obviously, this would depend upon where you're stimulating in brain and how you're stimulating When we talk about brain stimulation per se with existing devices, it's primarily in the anterior nucleus of thalamus, the central median nucleus of thalamus. At least a half a dozen other places have been stimulated in in smaller, less controlled studies. And then the responsive neurostimulation has a large experience and a positive controlled study stimulating at one or two regions that give rise to the seizure focus. 
So in those circumstances, the side effects of stimulation seem to be pretty mild. The majority of adverse events in the clinical trials and in clinical experience are the usual things you expect from implanting electrodes in the brain. For example, with a very large experience of implanting stimulating electrodes in patients with movement disorders. Sometimes the stimulation can, as you alluded to before, provoke seizures, and that's usually easily addressed by turning the intensity of the stimulation down. Sometimes there can be unpleasant paresthesias, there can be infections. There could be a theoretical concern that over time the stimulation might kindle, as in the animal model of kindling, but we haven't seen that, including in patients who've been stimulated now for over 10 years, so that must be a fairly rare effect. The patients cannot feel when the stimulation is on in their brain. They don't know it. They can feel the vagus nerve stimulation on because they get a sensation in their throat. They generally get used to that. So by and large, neurostimulation is pretty well tolerated. If I recall correctly, the vagus nerve stimulator was actually approved as a treatment for depression. I'm not sure how widely it's used, but that suggests that there is some impact on mood by neuromodulation. Yes, there can be, and you're correct about that. VNS was first approved as a treatment for epilepsy, and then it was observed anecdotally that some people seem to be less depressed sometimes, even if their seizures didn't get better with the VNS treatment. So it did achieve approval by the FDA as treatment for depression after, I believe it was, four other modalities of treatment for depression had not been successful, and some psychiatrists still use it for that. We in the epilepsy world are happy to have that as a beneficial side effect when we're using it to treat seizures. Now, RNS seemed to, in its clinical trials, have no signal either for or against depression. The deep brain stimulation, Sante trial, had increased reports of depression in the blinded phase for the stimulation group compared to the treatment group. Most of those people had depression beforehand and were reporting a subjective worsening. But a study long-term after five years, which analyzed depression in greater detail, actually found that the patients overall were less depressed in the long-term. So that might have just been an acute or a spurious uh, effect. I am surprised that stimulation does not have more effects than it does on normal functions. For example, I would have expected it would have had a greater impact on the sleep-wake cycle because the brain and the thalamus are very important for sleep. But so far, no signal really shows up. Well, along those lines, at least one of these devices, the NeuroPACE Responsive Stimulator, continuously records brainwave patterns which can be stored and reviewed. Has the availability of this intracranial EEG data taught us anything about epilepsy? Yeah, it's a very good question, Andrew, because we haven't really had an opportunity before to benefit from what the cardiologists benefit from all the time with implanted heart monitors that give you information over weeks or months. And this device is the first such instance. We've learned about diurnal variation of seizures. We've learned things about effects of seizure medications. Mostly we've learned that epilepsy, at least in this population that gets implanted, which may be a select population, is more often bilateral than we 
thought at the outset, and it can take a long period of time, weeks or sometimes even months, before the bilaterality of intermittent seizures becomes evident. Ultimately, I'm hoping that we will learn something from this data that will allow us to predict seizures and to do something to head them off at the pass. Well, before we close, Dr. Fisher, I'd like to give you an opportunity to speculate on the future of neuromodulation devices. Do you think that medications are going to become so effective that devices will no longer be needed? Or do you think the devices will become so effective with so few side effects that they might replace medications? I think neither is true. And I think neither medications nor devices will replace epilepsy surgery, which remains by and large the only curative treatment for epilepsy in patients who can be cured by surgery. The neuromodulation treatments are by and large palliative. Having said that, there certainly are some patients, perhaps 10, 20% of them, who become seizure-free for quite extended periods of time, and that's a very welcome development. But by and large, neuromodulation treatments are palliative. They don't apply to everyone. For example, the Responsive neurostimulation treatment only has uh, two places that you can stimulate. Each electrode, either a strip or a wire, has four contacts. But in order for it to work, you need to have one or two at the most seizure foci that you know where they are, but you don't want to take them out. So that's only a certain subpopulation of people, although it includes people with bilateral temporal lobe epilepsy, which is a, a pretty large population. With DBS, you don't have to know where the seizure focus is, but it's not responsive to the individual seizures. I would say that responsive neurostimulation is that, but it's probably also more than that because some patients get stimulated hundreds of times a day to electrographic changes that the device is programmed to sense. And so it itself probably has a long-term neuromodulatory effect as well as a responsive neurostimulation effect. And this is evident for all three modalities of neuromodulation, VNS, DBS, RNS. They become more effective over time. In the blinded phases of RNS and DBS, there were about 40% average seizure reductions. But by three, four, five years, you're closer to 70% median seizure reductions compared to baseline. This differs, for example, from stimulation for Parkinson's disease, where you see the effect in the operating room as soon as you turn on the stimulator. So there must be some long-term plastic changes happening here. Now, as for the future, I think the use of neuromodulation is going to grow. Indications for it are growing. The importance of it in the world of epilepsy will be growing. If it can be made less invasive, I think it will start growing even faster but it always will be an alternative, in my view, to medications, which will remain the first line of treatment, and potentially to surgery that might be able to cure the seizure focus. So a limited role, but I think a bright future. Bob, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your experience and insights regarding neuromodulation therapy and the treatment of epilepsy. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to chat with you. I think we're going to have to speak again, and I'm looking forward to reviewing with you the results of your ongoing research.
Thank you very much, uh, Andrew, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. To access this episode and others in this series and to download the ReachMD app, please visit ReachMD.com where you can be part of the knowledge. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening.